Welcome to On The Spot. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Walker. I want to continue our discussion on ancient African Christianity. In this episode, I want to spend some time talking about early Christian beliefs. Christian history is filled with footprints of beliefs that were held by Christians as they worked out their faith, understood the meaning of their faith, described the meaning of their faith, and demonstrated their faith in terms of commitment. In other words, as we look back in history and try to understand how the early believers understood their faith, we're able to see how decisions were made, how they forged out their faith, were able to examine and even at a distance observe reasons they believe were important enough to hang on to their faith. To be a Christian has always come with the reality of living one's Christian life out loud. In other words, it's impossible to live a Christian life in the closet. It's impossible to live a Christian life unobserved. And, And as we look back in history and observe the the, the actions, the footsteps, the pace of the early believers were able to observe and critique how they lived their lives. In fact, I should make it, make it plain that it's actually impossible to be an invisible Christian. For the Christian, engaging people is part of life. It is not possible to go around proclaiming one as a Christian and somehow avoid engaging people. No, engaging people is a part of life. And this involves being observed and critiqued. I once remember hearing uh, a great preacher who was talking uh, about the, the, the assignment and the ministry of being a, a public proclamator of the gospel. And he described it as one who is um, performing on a stage where, where no one bought a ticket. Uh, in, in other words, he w- he was trying to paint the picture uh, that w- when one stands to preach for Christ, that he or she is literally on a stage w- where nobody bought a ticket. And in that theater, that there is the need to understand the difference between substance and performance. Looking back at the ancient African Christianity period, several Christian beliefs emerged out of this period that directly, that directly impact believers throughout time. In fact, when we look back at the, this particular uh, period known as ancient African Christianity, several Christian beliefs not only emerged, but they emerged directly as a result of believers needing to create the opportunity and the ability to articulate and defend their faith. Articulating the Christian faith is a twofold project. It was a twofold project in ancient African Christianity in this particular era. On one hand, articulating Christian faith entailed determining which teachings were to be followed with dedication to Christ. In other words, to defend the Christian faith meant one had to understand, one had to grapple with which uh, teachings were considered and deemed correct. Correct, not by the standard of how one feels, but by the standard of remaining in complete dedication to following Christ. Now, on the other hand, it meant defending the Christian uh, or to the non-Christian and against heresies, 
which were viewed as threats to the truth revealed through the scriptures. So uh, even in the ancient African uh, Christian period, right up until this period that we're in now, um, those who have opposed Christians, those who have mocked Christians, those who have took issue with Christians have existed. So that's nothing new under the sun to sort of tug on what uh, Solomon would say. And heresies is nothing new under the sun. And here we were in a period where the believers believed it was very important to be able to uh, defend their identity as Christians. Because remember, we covered that in a couple of uh, discussions back that to be a Christian during this period was was way more than lip service. It, it was way more than um, putting a piece of jewelry on um, of a, a, a cross. What it really was is a identity change. It was a it was a swapping of identity away with the old identity I had and now onward with my new identity in Christ. And this is why uh, when we looked at Felicitas, she preferred to be uh, known as a Christian as when she told her father, you see this vase, what is it known as? He says a vase. He says, can it be known as anything other than a vase? No. So it is with me. I can be known as, as nothing other than or anything else than a Christian. So Christian, to be a Christian meant uh, at a very deep level to change, to shift one's identity. And by doing so, it created uh, many opportunities. It created many moments and encounters where the, the Christian had to defend his or her identity uh, to those who were not Christians. It also meant defending their faith uh, against heresies. For the earliest believers, the and particularly during this ancient African Christianity period, they strongly believed, strongly, strongly believed that truth was revealed through the scriptures. In a real sense, one of the most important aspects of being a Christian was the business of articulating and defending Christian beliefs. This can be different than how we see it uh, in the 21st century for their very different reasons that quite frankly, uh, believers might, might tag as why it's important for them to be a Christian. It could very well be uh, these type of examples where articulating and defending my faith in terms of being apologetic, not in the sense of saying I'm sorry, but in the sense of defending um, is their reason. For others, it is uh, a, a, a miracle. For others, it was uh, through an encounter. These things are as wide and as broad uh, as the Atlantic Ocean. But what I want you to begin to see uh, as we're looking at this, and particularly as we get into some of the beliefs, is begin to understand that being a Christian is very personal. And during the ancient African Christianity period, as each one became a Christian, they took on a new identity and as they assumed their new identity, they changed their lives to the degree that they were willing to lay down their lives because of and for their faith in Christ Jesus. And they found other like-minded believers who were with them in that cause. 
So what did ancient Christians believe during this ancient African Christianity period? And for those who may be just picking up here uh, at this particular broadcast, you may have missed the other episodes early on when I gave some background. But when I use the term ancient African Christianity, I'm talking about a specific period. The period I'm talking about about is the first 1,000 years of um, the history of Christianity where it took place in North Africa, okay? So what did ancient Christians believe in this period or during that period? Let me give you a couple of things that I think you'd find interesting. First and foremost, the Christians believe that following the example of Jesus and the apostles was of the highest and first order. What do I mean by that? Aligning oneself to the teachings and the examples of Jesus and the apostles was the highest priority. During this period, following the example of Jesus and the apostles was viewed as achievable. It was not something that was seen seen as unachievable. It was not something that was seen as, you know, uh, for lack of better terms, I can get to that later. This was a priority. It was essential. It was it was woven into the very I what was understood about the meaning of my identity as as a believer and as a Christian. And it certainly, and I do stress this, it was not an optional aspect of being a Christian. Being a Christian came with the non-negotiable of aligning to the teachings and examples of Jesus Christ or Jesus the Christ and the apostles. This was top priority. And to try to attempt to uh, be a Christian and not do this would cause serious problems among the congregations the, or the ecclesia, the church. It will cause very serious problems because the people believe that it was so serious and so important, given all that they believed as well as all that they were going through physically, that one must align his or her life to the example of Jesus, the Christ, and the apostles. And by apostles, they were they're talking about uh, the the twelve the apostles. Uh, and that are mentioned as in the Bible and in the scriptures as part of the apostolic ministry. So those 12 apostles, okay? The Old Testament was actually accepted. Now, now Christians during this period, they did not author the Old Testament. By now, you probably know that. So I'm not telling you something that's not new. Christians didn't author the Old Testament. Christians literally accepted and or adopted the Old Testament as authoritative. Remember, there are three faith systems that come out of Abraham. There's Judaism, Christianity, uh, and Islam. Well, Christians just adopted and accepted the Old Testament as authoritative, and they used primarily the, the Greek Septuagint version of the Old Testament. By accepting the Old Testament as authoritative, it created the context and the circumstance where early Christians had to find themselves in situations where they needed to read, interpret, and apply the Old Testament. We'll get into some of that a little bit later. The scriptures then 
was viewed as relevant to their lives. The Christians during the ancient African Christian Christianity period would not have viewed the scriptures as um, distinct apart from the relevance of the life that they were living. They viewed the scriptures as relevant to the lives that they were living. This meant that some believers then interpreted the scriptures literally. I know some of you are, are just taking a deep sigh on that because we understand what that could mean when you take every word, sentence, verse, however you want to put it, in, in, the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, literally. Some things can come out of that that can be very uh, destructive. And there were other Christians during this period that interpreted the scriptures using allegory. Uh, they believed the scriptures were composed uh, through God's spirit and it contained obvious as well as hidden meaning. So here you are in a, in a situation or here they were in a situation where they've accepted and adopted the authorized version uh, of the Old Testament at some point at a later date. We'll get to that later on. The New Testament is is um, is canonized. And when the New Testament is canonized and accepted, they're now have an Old Testament and a New Testament. And already there are competing hermeneutical hermeneutics, just a another uh, term for interpretation. There are competing hermeneutical methods. One method is to just interpret scripture literally. Another method is to interpret script scripture using allegory. And, and so when we find ourselves and to this day, we're, we're still, you know, find competing views. They're, they're all tort, tort, uh, excuse me, sorts of hermeneutical uh, methodologies that are out there uh, for believers and, and, and Christians, as well as, you know, theologians and ministers. They use different hermeneutics to arrive at what the scripture is saying so that they can arrive at what it means in current time. This is why it's so very important uh, to not only just listen uh, to a Bible teaching, to not only just listen to a sermon, but have some sense of understanding of where the Bible teacher, of where the minister is coming from in terms of his or her hermeneutical method. In other words, how is this person reading and interpreting the scriptures to arrive at this set of meanings? This is how I'm able to, de to determine whether I'm in alignment with what uh, they're teaching or preaching or not, because the truth is uh, all people approach the scriptures with some kind of interpretation method. Now, you're familiar with the law, by now, I'm sure, in terms of what the law means, in terms of the scripture, how it's referenced. But the believers of this period believe that the whole law was spiritual. Now, now wherever you fall on the side of the aisle in the 21st century, uh, that's because we have been afforded the opportunity to look backwards at so many years of history and to be able to benefit and be beneficiaries from so much uh, intellectual work. Uh, done by those who preceded us, that we're able to look at the law and come up with all kinds of positions. Well, the ancient um, uh, Christians during this period didn't have that option. And so when they looked at the law, they looked at the law 
as uh, spiritual. They saw the law as, uh, you know, spiritual. And so by seeing the law as spiritual, it meant that they now approached the law a certain way. They uh, approached the law with the understanding that it is spiritual and that settled it for them. Uh, once that settled it for them, they were good to go. They did not have uh, any problem with understanding uh, that the scripture was spiritual. They didn't have any problem with uh, uh, accepting that uh, what God gave uh, uh, the, the, the belief system that in terms of Judaism was spiritual and therefore they could accept it that way and they just moved on with it. This is not always so when you fast forward and look at things in the 21st century, again, because we have the opportunity to look backwards on the works of so many who held different positions and then also incorporate our own uh, presuppositions and beliefs and then arrive at our own positions. The early believers wanted to fully submit, and this is an important one. The early believers really wanted to submit fully to the apostles' teaching. If there is one uh, set of individuals outside of Jesus the Christ that the early believers really wanted to submit to, it was the apostles and their teachings. They really, really, really wanted to submit to those teachings. And so they did what they believed they needed to do to align themselves to the teachings of the apostles. The believers at during this period also believed that God created the world and the world was uh, that God created was good. They fundamentally, and I, I am not saying fundamental or fundamentally in terms of what we understand in many circles today as conservative, you know, fundamentalist or or liberal or or any of those type terms. I'm I'm not aligning this term or using the term fundamental that way. I'm using the term fundamental in the sense that in looking back in history, they basically at a very basic level believed that God created the world. And when he did so, the world that God created was good. You can have all kinds of opinions on that now. And I get that. But it's important when we think about this particular period, that this was their basic belief. God created the world and the world God created was good. The early believers believed now, this is interesting. The early believers believed that remarriage was wrong. In fact, <laughs> there were competing views on marriage during this period. One view that I'm sharing with you, which was a belief and it came, became a belief, was once married, you're always married. So if you remarry, it meant that you, A, had a divorce. Or, and, and if you had a divorce, it was considered totally unacceptable to remarry. Uh, there were some instances where someone may have been widowed where um, remarrying was accepted. But if putting a, the widow aspect aside, once a Christian married, for him or her to get a divorce and then go and remarry, that was considered uh, out of bounds. That was considered wrong. 
the, the early believers also during this period observed a very strict moral code. Morality was a big deal for Christians during this period. Such a big deal that as they adopted uh, moral practices, they typically lean toward a strict er at morality code. They, they were not as interested in trying to find themselves in the middle of the road as much as they were really more concerned with not being like those who were non-Christians. And part of the philosophy of not being like those who are or were non-Christians was to adopt moral codes that were quite strict. What's interesting is when you think about spiritual gifts, and I know when you look at this, particularly through um, the works that have been done on spiritual gifts starting around the about the 19th century, certainly expanding and exploding during the 20th century. When we think of spiritual gifts, looking at it from a 21st century context, we have all sorts of resources and we have all sorts of teachings. We have all sorts of books and tapes and sermons and all kinds of stuff, podcasts, everything talking about not only the basic meaning of spiritual gifts, but how they function and how they are used and how they are granted and so forth and so on. Again, the believers and during this period didn't have all of that at their disposal. So they had to try to discern which, you know, spiritual gifts uh, were to believe, were to be believed in and accepted. Well, one of the earliest spiritual gifts uh, that was uh, believed in was the spiritual gift of prophecy to, to prophecy. And so this is one of the one of the early spiritual gifts that believers began to uh, accept. They also believed that communion or the Eucharist uh, ensured purity. That, that's a very interesting belief, by the way, because here are, is a body of believers who are willing to literally die for their belief in Christ somehow does not, for whatever reason or reasons, with an S, does not find themselves pure through their faith in Christ, do not find themselves pure through being sealed uh, with the Holy Spirit, a guarantee of the inheritance in Christ Jesus. Do not believe in a sense that they're sealed through their baptism into Christ. Now I'm not talking about water baptism. I'm talking about spirit baptism. And they find themselves when dealing with the communion and Eucharist and how to not only appreciate it, not only appropriate it, but to value it. And when you add what the value of it is, they hang ensuring purity on it. That's a very interesting um, matter to observe about that period. The, the early believers also in this period believed in practicing asceticism. You know, every now and again, I'm, I'll meet a, a believer who's practicing some form of asceticism in the 21st century. But in their day, this was very, 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 very common to practice asceticism. Again, 
this was part of the the earliest belief that Christians needed to live lives that were very distinct from non-Christians. Asceticism is part of that. And so when you observe someone, if you ever meet someone who's practicing asceticism, somewhere in their belief system in Christ, there is a acceptance and an adherence to a position that part of my experience in Christ includes and uh, requires of me to live my life a particular way through asceticism as I am demonstrating my new life in Christ and I am not like non-believers. They believed in the baptism and rebaptism, which is interesting that uh, uh, the rebaptism component, but they did believe in rebaptism and and it's important uh, that I do uh, share that with you. And I do want to apologize. Uh, I realize that my phone rang a couple of times here while I was uh, recording and there's been a couple of um, beeps as well as I've accidentally hit keyboards, but certainly forgive me for that. Um, they did believe in, in baptism and rebaptism. This is interesting because as we think about uh, the Christian faith and baptism, uh, take, putting aside baptism into Christ, putting aside being baptized by the spirit and simply talking about water baptism. This is what we're talking about. Baptism and rebaptism. This is water baptism. Okay. There are all sorts of positions on this. There is no unanimously agreed upon position on water baptism. In fact, there's not even a unanimously agreed upon method of water baptism. Depending depending upon where you are um, in the world, you will observe water baptism performed in different ways. Okay, nothing wrong with that. Why? Because there is no specific prescription on how to baptize someone in water. In other words, how to baptize, immerse them, the person in the water. There's there's nothing there. So it's not uncommon to see that. It's the rebaptism component that's interesting. Um, I, I, I've met people, I know people who have traveled to uh, Israel on uh, Holy Land tours and have decided uh, to get baptized there uh, in the river or, or what have you, where uh, other saints throughout history or where the Lord is believed, where the Lord Jesus Christ was baptized. Now, did they go to the Holy Land with a strong belief in rebaptism? Who knows? Maybe some did, maybe some didn't. But being baptized again was deemed acceptable inside their personal belief system within the corporate belief system of Christianity. In other words, something occurred that caused the individual to decide, I want to be baptized again, 
or in some instances, I need to be baptized again. In fact, just moving away from the Holy Land, there there are all sorts of instances where folks who were baptized uh, previous at a previous you know point and station in life will decide later on uh, to uh, to be baptized all over again. Well, this rebaptism uh, was not birthed in the you know 17, 18, 19, 20th century. It actually started uh, right there in the first century in the ancient African Christianity period as they were wrestling with uh, real circumstances and, and working their way through circumstances as they present themselves to the believers. It is interesting, remember I told you a moment ago, there were competing ideas about marriage. On one hand, uh, there were those who believed that once married, you know, you're always married except for divorce. And if you if you divorce or if your spouse leave you, you cannot remarry. Well, the polar opposite belief was, well, marriage is right, period. Marriage is right. So the believers had a belief that, hey, when it comes to marriage, this is fundamentally right. Now, there was even a third belief concerning marriage. Some believers believed that, it, that marriage in and of itself should be avoided, even though it is right. In other words, it's just better to not marry anybody. Now, there are, there you go, three uh, competing views that were beliefs about marriage. The question that you should be asking yourself is what did Jesus say? Did Jesus say any of that? Say anything that um, would have helped them, caused them, stimulated them, influenced them to arrive at those positions? You begin to analyze the very words of Christ, which he didn't say a whole lot on marriage, by the way. But when you begin to look at the words that he said on Christ, you would discover uh, very, very quickly. You don't have to be, uh, you know, a heavy scholar on this, but you'll discover very, very quickly uh, that at least a couple of these positions are just flat out have nothing to do with what Christ said. And there's only about one of these, one of the three that you really have to wrestle with. And that's the one pertaining to uh, divorce and and remarriage. But I just wanted to point that out in this discussion that there were three competing views uh, on marriage. As I try to wrap this up, I want to give you just a few more as we're talking this out together for, for your hearing and, and giving you a chance to have some things to ponder. Um, here's something interesting about sin that began to take root, take shape, was forged in terms of a belief system among the believers. Some believers during this period believed that if a Christian committed a major sin after he or she was baptized, it was unforgivable. That there was no way to, to reconcile it on earth. This is interesting because that grows throughout the history of Christianity. Martyrdom, to be martyred, became uh, something during this era that was deemed a worthy experience. So that there are believers who had absolutely no problem with dying for Christ. And we observed that uh, in the previous discussion as we looked at Felicitas and uh, we, we looked at um, um, Perpetua. We looked at 
the, the fellow brothering there with them, uh, they had no problem dying for Christ, not any problem at all, and found it an honor uh, to die for their faith in Christ. And when I say faith, I'm talking about unwavering commitment to Christ, period. Uh, church leadership, we see early on during this period that church leadership and church structure began to uh, necessitate and need to be addressed. And uh, it was adopted during this period that church leadership structure, in other words, putting together a leadership structure, structure for local congregations was fundamentally right. And along this line, uh, establishing the bishopric was needed. Now, the bishopric during this period is radically different than how many of us have come to understand the bishopric depending upon what our, our um, denomination affiliation is. However, it is important for us to, to hear that the bishopric goes all the way back to the very first century of Christianity and started um, there during the ancient African Christianity period, okay? So bishops was deemed right for local congregations. The, the understanding of how to describe who Jesus is, the need to be able to describe it, the need to be able to figure out who you're worshiping were very important matters for the early believers. And they concluded, Jesus is Lord. He is to be worshiped as God. And that wherever um, the Old Testament uh, references or mentions Yahweh, we are to apply Christ in those instances. So, so they were already wrestling with, struggling with, working their way through. Remember what I said, working out your faith, working their way through. How do we uh, define who Christ is? How do we determine what is right in terms of the right way to worship him? Uh, and what do we do about uh, addressing what Christ has to do with the Old Testament? The doctrine of the Trinity. I'm going to talk about that later. Uh, in, an, in another uh, upcoming episode, uh, as I begin to deal with some of the earliest intellectual theologians of this era that came out of uh, um, Africa, North Africa. But I will say in this broadcast that uh, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity for Christianity developed in this period. I want to be very careful to say that because there are other doctrines of the Trinity that predate the doctrine of the Christian Trinity, okay? And, and those, um, in terms of just, you know, looking at history in terms of what history bears out in terms of fact, that just is what it is. It, it is not appropriate uh, to say uh, with a straight face that Christian the Christian, and I'm using the term Christian Trinity, the, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity is not, a, it is not appropriate to say that was first because history is just replete with, with uh, bearing out facts that it wasn't. So the, the Christian doctrine of the, Trini of, of the Trinity developed during the ancient African Christian period you know, we already know that Jesus was persecuted 
in terms of when I say we already know, I'm really speaking generally. I'm, I do not mean to put any pressure on anyone, but at a very basic level, Jesus dying on the cross, we understand that to mean he was persecuted. Well, the believers during the ancient African Christianity period had uh, a need to deal with what that meant. And so here's what they came up with, that Jesus was persecuted by the Jews. He died and was buried. He rose and ascended into heaven. That was there, you know, in a, in a, a very simplified synopsis. That was where they stood. They also held the position that God is creator and maker of all things. All things in their mindset, in their belief system, came from God. Now, that's very interesting. All of that's interesting as we think about the period ancient African Christianity, as we think about what it means. As we're working our way through this topic, as we're working our way through this subject, you're beginning to see uh, that the Christian faith is forging and emerging into new dimensions. It's taking on much more shape. It's starting to take on much more structure. And in our next episode, where we deal with um, ancient African Christianity, I'll begin to touch on some of the earliest theologians that came out of North Africa. Theologians that provided the framework for essential Christian doctrine in many ways. Well, as always, I've enjoyed spending time with you. And until I get a chance to talk with you again, I'll see you around like a donut.